and uh, in all likelihood the one that carries the scroll that we call Philippians, that he will be the one that conveys the, the scroll from Ephesus to Philippi. And uh, when they are reading these very words, it's because Epaphroditus was the courier that brought them this, uh, this scroll. So Philippians 2.25, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. And this is uh, what we're looking at here this morning. Before we do begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to, uh, to teach us the Word of God this morning. Shall we pray? <clears throat> Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for this morning. We thank You for this day. We thank You for the abundant blessings that are ours today, Father, through the teaching of the Word of God. We call upon your faithfulness to humble us, to hedge us about and protect us, to set aside distractions, Father, so we can fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Father, uh, open our eyes, teach us from your truth this morning, bless us in every, in every way, Father. Overcome the allergies, overcome the distractions. We thank you in Christ's name, amen. All right, so within <coughs> capacity of congestion, we're going we're gonna to teach. How about that? All right, so we have this necessity. I thought it necessary to send Epaphroditus. And whether it was truly necessary or not, Paul thought that it was. And so if you think that it is, if you consider that it is, then it is. And you proceed forward on that basis. And uh, the issues with respect to hope and faith, we've gone through a couple of times now, and and I'm not going to repeat all that, but let's just understand that as we're walking by faith, faith is that that uh, bridge. It allows us to cross that bridge when all we're doing is hoping and we don't see what we need to see yet. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so we have all of these expressions here in this passage. We have the hope, we have the hope, but he doesn't yet see. He says, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And so when you're not seeing it yet, when you're not seeing it yet, all you're doing is hoping Faith is what equips you to, to cross that bridge and to keep on hoping until you see it, until the Father demonstrates for you what it is that you're supposed to see. And then once He shows that to you, now you continue to proceed on a faith basis. You stop hoping, of course, because nobody hopes for what He already sees, but you continue to walk by faith, you continue to move on in the will of God on that basis. And so uh, this is our provision, and this is God's grace provision for us so that we don't spend you know, we don't make a decision and then spend weeks and months and years afterwards second-guessing that decision or uh, wondering if it was a right decision or because if you allow yourself to proceed on a doubting basis, then that doubt will follow you. That doubt will follow you the next day, the next week, the next month, the next year. You will continually be doubting. And so we don't want to doubt. Whatever is not from faith is sin. We want to proceed on a faith basis every time. And so all of these things uh, come into focus and, and are illustrated well in, uh, in this paragraph right here. And so then he says, but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. And so this is point five in the outline and really the last main development of the chapter. Even before Timothy's mission, Paul considered it necessary to return Epaphroditus to Philippi. And it is in fact a return because uh, Philippi is the source is the origin from when uh, Epaphroditus first arrived, when Epaphroditus first uh, encountered Paul and and, uh, brought to him 
some funds that we see that we read about in, in chapter 4. And so uh, in a sense, when Paul sends Epaphroditus to Philippi, he's sending him home, sending him back, sending him back to where they first met and, and where Epaphroditus came from. Now, uh, we took some time to talk about these titles. These are marvelous titles, five of them. And very unusual. I think it's the only place. If you can find something comparable to this, let me know, because I've been searching and I can't find it. All right, I can find when Paul talks about somebody or praises somebody, he'll generally give them one title. You know, greet, uh, you know, so-and-so my fellow worker. Greet so-and-so my fellow prisoner. Greet so-and-so my uh, kinsman according to the flesh. He'll generally have one description. Occasionally he'll have two. (coughs) And almost never does he have more than two. (coughs) I think we went through that long list in Romans 16, and we found only one guy that had three or four descriptions for him. Uh, But here Epaphroditus has five. All right, and then vocabulary I think we're mostly familiar with in the sense of brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier. The word apostle, by the way, the word for messenger is apostle, and that's one that takes some work to deal with. And then uh, liturgos for minister, and that's what we're going to focus on here this morning, is the liturgical ministry that takes place in our priesthood, in the church age. How do we minister to one another on a liturgical basis? See, and we want to make sure we're biblical about it, that we're not medieval uh, Catholic, or we're not uh, Old Testament. We don't want to be Old Testament liturgical, and we don't want to be medieval Roman Catholic liturgical. We want to be biblical liturgical, as the New Testament reveals our priestly service of worship, okay? Because there's plenty of definition in the New Testament that tells us how to conduct ourselves as a living sacrifice, which is our liturgical service of worship, all right? So these are the five titles. And when you look at these five titles, first of all, five is a, is a huge number. I don't think there's a parallel in the New Testament for somebody like this. But those five are actually broken down into two categories, the my, 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 and the your, your. Okay, Because the first three are my. My brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. And so those all relate to Paul from his perspective. Okay, And so you know, and it might might consider it as a tug of war because Paul has three claims on, on Epaphroditus and Philippi only has two claims on Epaphroditus. He's my brother, he's my fellow worker, he's my fellow soldier, he's your messenger, he's your minister, and it's your minister to my need. So even though they've got two, Paul shares that second one because <laughs> he's your messenger and minister to my need, okay, as he completes what was lacking in your service to him. So uh, these five titles are, are curious, and if it was a tug-of-war, Paul could make a claim to say, well, I've got three claims on him, you only have two claims on him, so I'm going to keep him here, <laughs> right? I'm going to keep him here in, in Ephesus because he's serving me, I need him, he blesses me, he's my fellow warrior. And yet, he considers that it's necessary. He considers that it's a have-to. He considers that it's an obligation, and so he is going to dispatch him and send him uh, back to Philippi. All right, and so we have uh, those principles there. Um, and I think out of all of these, the two that really need the most explanation, soon ergos, we, we get uh, from ergodzomai and ergon for a work and a working together, and stratiotes for a soldier, and a soon stratiotes for a fellow soldier. Those are pretty self-explanatory. But the fact that he's called an apostle makes us jump and say, oh, wait a minute, what do you mean by apostle? Okay? And so uh, we want to be clear on this. We're not saying the Bible doesn't call him an apostle of Jesus Christ, right? 
An apostle of Jesus Christ is an entirely different thing. An apostle of Jesus Christ by gift and by office. I'm not saying that. This text doesn't say it. In fact, it says he is your apostle. He is an apostle of Philippi, an apostle of the saints in Philippi, if you want to give him a more uh, expansive title. Okay? And so uh, just, a, just a short note on apostles, not to give a full doctrine of apostles, but there are different flavors of apostle, and, and we want to be clear on that. The New Testament has an expression called apostle of the Lamb, right? The apostles of the Lamb. There were 12. And the apostles of the Lamb, and their names are going to be written on the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem. The apostles of the Lamb. And we want to recognize that those are limited. There's only 12 of them. And, and after Judas was, was removed from his apostleship, there was a replacement for Judas. Biblically, that replacement came in Acts chapter 1. That replacement is Matthias. All right, So you're going to have Peter to Matthias on the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem. You're not going to have Paul. And I know there's pastors that teach that differently. There's theologians that teach that differently. They want Paul to be the 12th apostle. Paul's the apostle that replaces because they've got a, a Paul, uh, they're, they're fanboys of, of the apostle Paul. And I get that. I like Paul a lot myself. But Paul was not an apostle of the Lamb. He did not travel with Jesus from the baptism to the cross. He was not the eyewitness of the resurrection. He was later, but not at the time of the resurrection like the apostles of the Lamb were. He was not in the upper room on Easter Sunday when Jesus appeared in their midst. Matthias was, see. And so the apostles of the Lamb are the apostles of the Lamb. Um, let me, uh, let's just turn to 1 Corinthians 15. It's easy enough to find to show you that there are apostles and there are apostles. And you'll notice in the appearances... Here's the gospel message. Here's the good news. And we all can share this good news that uh, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's verse 3. That He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Notice, the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than uh, 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James then to all the apostles. Aha! So we learn that apostles is more than just the twelve. The twelve are listed there in verse 5, and then James, then to all the apostles in verse 7. So we've got different kinds of apostles, and we want to be clear on this. Different kinds of apostles, and the twelve is, is one kind, called the apostles of the Lamb. And then James and the brothers of Jesus, they were also called to be apostles. James and Jude even wrote books of the New Testament as apostles, all right? And then there are additional apostles. Barnabas is called an apostle. And at least two or three different references where Barnabas is called an apostle, where, of course, Paul is called an apostle repeatedly. And so we have different kinds of apostles by gift and by office. And then there is a sort of apostle that is... uh, uh, the lexicons call it of a, a generic sort of apostle or a general kind of an apostle. And these are the references that we have in Philippians 4 uh, or Philippians 2 uh, or 2 Corinthians 8. And these are apostles of churches. And these are when churches will give a commission and send somebody forth. And they call them an apostle. But it's an apostle of a church. 
not an apostle of Jesus Christ. And they're sent forth to represent that church. And they have a mission. And when they're done with that mission, then conceivably that apostleship is concluded. That apostleship is complete. And so the example that we have we're looking at this morning is Epaphroditus. He was an apostle, uh, a messenger, apostle, and minister to my need. But notice it's your apostle, your, the Philippian saints. It's their uh, commission that they sent him on. And we learn about it in chapter 4 that he was the one that was sent with the finances. He was the one that was sent, as it says in 4.18, I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And so the apostolic ministry of Epaphroditus was uh, was sent with uh, with gifts, with financial gifts, with offerings to the Apostle Paul during the time of his uh, imprisonment. Second uh, Corinthians eight twenty three, another example of local church apostles. And uh, the various people that are being sent, Titus is being sent, a famous gospel brother is, is being sent with him. Titus in verse 16, the famous gospel brother in verse 18. And then um, in verse 22, we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things. So the tested and diligent brother of Paul and, and Timothy. But now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. And as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are apostles of the churches. A glory to Christ. So apostles of the churches. You see that phrase in, in 2 Corinthians 8.23? Apostles of the churches. And that's very specific. That's, that's terminology that, where we can, we can recognize that biblically and realize that he's not saying Titus is an apostle like Paul's an apostle or like Peter was an apostle or like they're not apostles of Jesus Christ. They're not apostles of the Lamb. They're apostles of the churches that are commissioning them and sending them forth. Okay? And it's so much more. Apostello sending is so much more than pimpo sending. An apostolo, apostolo commission means that when you arrive, it's as if you are the person who sent you. Jesus is arriving and he represents the Father. And Jesus sends the apostles and said, you represent me. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. All right? And so when under an apostolic commission, when you are sent, you stand in the place of the one who sent you. Which is why Jesus said, this teaching is not mine, it's the one who sent me. Okay? And so every apostle of Jesus Christ represents Jesus Christ. They have representative authority. That's powerful. Pastors don't have that. I have delegated authority, not representative authority. I'm not an apostle. I have delegated authority. I'm held in the right hand of Jesus Christ, but I don't speak for Jesus Christ in his place, in his name, on that basis. You understand the difference? Big difference. Anyway, um, anyway, the, the use of the word apostle bothers a lot of people. I think it's marvelous. I think it's a, it's a great usage and, uh, and different things there. And then the server minister. As a server minister, Epaphroditus performed his priestly ministrations on Paul's behalf. As a server minister, 
Epaphroditus performed his priestly ministrations on Paul's behalf. So think about liturgically now how a priest ministers. Because the, the noun is liturgos, and, the, and the, uh, the verb and the adjective, all the expressions that are connected to this, speaks of the liturgy. You ever been in a liturgical church? You have a background with a liturgical church? We're not a liturgical church. We're kind of the opposite, I don't know. Um, and that bothers people. Some, some visitors want to hear, you know, the seasonal messages on Easter and Christmas and Advent and all the other things. And, and it can even, uh, you know, you, you might lose church family members if, if you're, you know, they want to go to a liturgical church. They want to they hear, you know, the resurrection message on Easter Sunday. Well, we're in a, we're in a Hebrew series right now. And we'll, we'll, we'll find a resurrection connection at some point. We're going to sing Easter hymns, but we're not, we're not stopping what we're doing because we don't follow the advent calendar. I don't wear the robes. We don't have the, the colored stoles and the, the drapes and the, the, the banners and the, 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 all the, the colors and, and the linens that go with that kind of stuff. See, in any event, liturgical. What is the priestly ministration? This is what we're going to talk about here this morning because the Levites had a lot of liturgical things to do. They had to trim wicks. They had to uh, they had to take old bread away and bake new bread and put new bread out. They had uh, things they had to do in the tabernacle. They had things to do with the altar. They had things to do with the laver. They had uh, they had sacrifices to offer. They had blood to sprinkle. They had incense to to uh, to burn. A lot of liturgical things they had to do. They had trumpets to blow. Okay, a lot that they did liturgically, and we do none of that stuff. What do we do liturgically? Okay, we do a lot. And it's not the phony ritual, it's not the medieval Roman tradition either too, where the, you know, the guy, the priest turns his back to the, to the people and he, he's gonna do the, the magical hocus pocus and, and transform the bread into the body of Christ and the cup into the blood of Christ. And if he's in an Orthodox church, he actually goes behind a veil to do that. You can't even see him do that. And then he comes back out from the veil. And it's part of their architecture, part of how they design their sanctuaries. And then, uh, uh, they have the, the liturgy that they, that they follow with the various things. We don't do that. But what we do, what do we do as our liturgy? We serve one another. We serve one another. And that's described here as liturgical service. So he's performing priestly ministrations on Paul's behalf. And I want us to start thinking in priestly terms because this is what we're dealing with. And in these priestly terms, um, what we're going to be seeing in, in Hebrews, what we're going to be seeing in, uh, well, let's look at these verses here. Uh, not only 2.17, but how about verse 25? Start to think of these in priestly terms. I'm going to add Romans 12 while I'm thinking about it. But Philippians 2.17 and 25. Remember the, the drink offering language? Philippians 2.17, Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. So there's liturgical language. There's priestly language right there. And we recognize that it's metaphoric, but we recognize that as a metaphor, it represents a reality that you and I engage in. And in Paul's case, the the drink offering would be his physical death, to be poured out. And he's willing to be poured out. He's ready to be poured out. And to make that the drink offering, the toast, if you think of it as, uh, to their sacrifices. See, because the Philippians are the ones that are offering sacrifices 
It's the sacrifice of their faith. The sacrifice and service of your faith. See, so when we serve one another, that is a sweet-smelling savor. That is a sacrifice. It's liturgical. It's going up before the Father's throne and He smells it. We want Him to smell it. We want Him to smell it as a sweet-smelling savor. And so we have that language there. The language is repeated in verse 25. He is your apostle and minister, liturgical minister to my need. It's not doulos, it's not diakonos, it's not deacon or it's not slave, it's not any of the other terms we could have for servant. It's minister, it's liturgical priestly minister. Minister to my need. In verse 30, he came close to death for the work of Christ. You know, are there certain career fields that are riskier? Are there certain occupations that have a higher hazard? That uh, more, uh, probably more work, workplace deaths among uh, uh, in the lumber mill than in the, the library? I, I'm guessing, I don't know. Um, but there are, there are st- statistics for this, right? I mean, they track this kind of stuff. And, and actuarial tables and, and workmen's comp insurers and all kinds of things. And, 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 and it's a fact And more men die in the workplace than women because more men are in those kind of jobs than women because women are smarter. <laughs> Don't take those kind of jobs, you know, jumping out of airplanes or jumping and running into fire, you know, uh, fighting fires in, in buildings and things of that nature. Well, Church age, let me tell you, this is a hostile work environment. This is a, it's a, it's a high-risk occupation. Okay? In fact, there are some, they won't underwrite you for life insurance if you, if you have a, a particular career field. Though you have to have a certain writer on your policy or a different kind of policy or a different insurance uh, underwriter depending on the, the line of work that you do. So uh, we get that. But here's Epaphroditus risking his life he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your liturgical priestly administration's service to me. And so the term is used there as well in a priestly context. Uh, Romans. And while I'm at it, on my way to Romans 15, I'm going to stop by Romans 12. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. This is priesthood. This is our liturgical service. This is what we do. We don't bring animals. We're not killing anything. Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice. He died once. He ever liveth to make intercession for the saints. He died and rose again. We're done with the dead sacrifices. How about that? We're all about the living sacrifice now. We walk in the newness of life. We walk in Christ. And so I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. That is, you, your body, your daily life, how you conduct yourself. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service, liturgical service of worship. This is what we do. All day, every day, when you're conducting your life for the glory of Jesus Christ, when you live according to the norms and standards of Bible doctrine, you are presenting yourself as a living and holy sacrifice. Say, here I am, send me, right? Here I am. I am yours. 
And everything that I do, everything that I do is a living and holy sacrifice because it's shaped by the Word of God. As verse 2 goes on to say, not being conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind. You know, And this world may not understand it. That you're conducting yourself for the glory of Jesus Christ and that's your priestly ministry. That's your worship. You worship Him every day when you live according to His biblical norms and standards. And it's not, uh, you know, it's not an emotional feeling of you know, a certain kind of music style or a certain kind of thing and we call it worship if whatever. No. Worship is living your daily life for the glory of Jesus Christ as far as that goes. So, Anyway. And yesterday, oh I was fun, yesterday it's always graduation, and I had a chance. I met the parents of a couple of kids that used to be in Bob's Boy Scout troop, and now they're living in California and kind of find out, you know, five years later, ten years later, whatever, um, what they're doing now. And uh, they're roommates, two brothers are roommates in Los Angeles, and lights in the midst of a pagan world, let me tell you. <laughs> and among all their coworkers and all their friends and all their associates, and why don't you smoke dope? Everybody's smoking dope. Well, we don't, and here's why. And they're able to give the gospel right there because we belong to Jesus Christ and uh, we want to glorify Him with every thought, word, and deed. And I thought, wow! <laughs> Happy to hear that. That, that. that made my whole weekend right there, among many other highlights. That was a highlight. All right. So verse 30, verse 25, we saw those. Romans uh, 12, we saw that. How about Romans 15, 16? Now here's an example, specifically. He says in verse 15, I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God. And what's this grace supposed to do? To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. To be a minister. We're all ministers. It's not just the guy in a suit and tie on a Sunday morning you call the minister, right? We're all ministers. Paul says he's a minister. And more than this, this is the liturgical minister, the priest minister. A minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God. You ever think about it that way when you're given the gospel? It's a priestly ministration. Just view yourself as a Levite in the tabernacle and you're trimming wicks and you're filling oil and you're, you're changing out bread and you're, you're doing all your priestly ministrations. Well, when you're given the gospel, you're serving a priestly ministration in that very act. And more than that, when you reap the harvest, they become an offering, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And so you're ministering the gospel on a priestly basis, and when somebody gets saved, you can then offer that up in prayer as a, as a sacrifice. What a blessing. So we start to see how we serve as believer priests, and it's, 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 uh, it's all in the spiritual realm, it's all in, in, our, in our attitude before the Lord, in our prayer life, in, I think, in the, the, the mindset of how we approach certain things. We can approach it as a priestly ministration. And uh, this passage, I think, spells it out very well. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7. <coughs> Of his angels, he says, who makes his angels winds, 
and his liturgical priestly ministers a flame of fire. That's what, uh, that's what they are. They're not, when you think of minister, what are you thinking there? You're thinking politically, foreign ministers? You're thinking what kind of minister are you thinking? A, a member of parliament? You're thinking of a, some kind of a governmental minister? Uh, no. It's a priestly minister. It is a priestly ministration <coughs> that the angels are engaged in. And the handful of people, prophets that had gone to heaven, Isaiah went to heaven, he saw the angels, what were they doing? Ministering in the holy temple, ministering before God, singing holy, 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 and pursuing their ministrations. Jesus ministers in the temple. Hebrews 8. And the main point in what has been said is this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary. So this is what Jesus does. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. A minister in the sanctuary, in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Remember the Old Testament tabernacle was just a replica. Solomon's temple was just a replica. The reality was still in heaven and always has been in heaven. All right? And that's where he's gone. A minister in the sanctuary. So what do you think a minister does? He ministers. That's right. It's a noun and a verb. The minister ministers. And it's not an empty title. It's not a, you know, it's not a thing he just puts on his letterhead and then doesn't do anything. That's not an empty title. He doesn't, it's like head of the church. People uh, will, will credit Jesus as the head of the church, but they never consider that he does anything as the head of the church. That is, he's just like an absentee landlord, or he's just a, you know, he's a, he's a figurehead, he's got a title, but it doesn't mean anything because he doesn't do anything. And too many people have that view. It's heartbreaking to me. He is the head of the church, and he's actively involved in his headship. He walks in the midst of the lampstands. He holds the stars in his right hand. His eyes are everywhere, in every lampstand. See, he takes corrective action when it needs to be taken. He's very busy as the head of the church. Likewise, as the minister in the, new, in, the, in the true tabernacle, he's ministering, he's working, he's doing this, as these verses say. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. You think he's just sitting there doing nothing? He's appointed, is he not? Is he offering gifts and sacrifices? I believe he is. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. He's offering day by day. He's offering moment by moment. He's bestowing gifts. He's offering sacrifices. They're not sin sacrifices. Oh, no, no, we're past that. Sin sacrifice was once and for all. There are better sacrifices. We're convinced of better things. And that's, Hebrews are going to take us into those better things. And the good thing is, is that he's a Melchizedek priest in heaven because uh, in earthly terms he's not even qualified. He's not a Levite. That's what the rest of uh, chapter 8 goes into there. So as a server minister, Epaphroditus performed his priestly ministrations in Paul's behalf. And I think it's interesting too, when we see what this gift is about, when we see what these... Um, these ministrations are involved with, when we see that the server-minister gift tends to be uh, particularly object-focused in a singularity instead of in a generality, 
Uh, helps seems to be in a generality that as a spiritual gift, the gift of helps seems to be in general addressed in a wide spectrum of, of things that, that come up here and there in various places within the ministry, within the local church. For example, deacons, for example, uh, have a service ministry to the local church at large, to a broad you know, uh, spectrum in the sense that it's not focused, it doesn't have a singularity. Okay, So uh, we have a number of deacons, and, and the deacons are deacons of the flock. They're deacons of the church. They're deacons of everybody. We don't have, uh, there's no deacon that's been assigned to one single person. It says, all right, here you go, this is your deacon. <laughs> okay, but server minister is precisely that. The server minister giftedness and the server minister ministry is exactly that. It is singularity focused. Joshua was Moses' attendant from his youth. And that was a singularity of focus. His, his, his ministry focus was Moses. Okay? Elisha was Elijah's uh, attendant. It was his server, his minister. And, and in many of these capacities, they themselves are being trained to step into leadership in their generation, right? Joshua followed Moses. Elisha followed Elijah. Timothy was Paul's servant, that he served me as a child serves his father. You know his proven worth. That's our text, uh, the Philippians 2 text right here. You know his chosen, his proven worth, that he served me as a child, his father. See? And so we have uh, a singularity of focus in, in, uh, in these applications that we see. There were uh, many women in, in Jesus' ministry that were focused on providing for his needs. And so they were provisioned for, for his uh, travel funds, for his, for his financial needs when, when our Savior was in his ministry. We have other examples as well. I, I would encourage you to go back to the basic doctrinal studies, that 10th category, the charismatology, and read through that list of spiritual gifts because server minister demonstrates that singularity of focus in a, in a field of service. In, uh, in regard to that, okay? And uh, we've got modern examples we have. The first one I ever met was in the Philippines, a fellow named Jeff. Marvelous, marvelous brother. Very, and and he's, was he, a, was he a, a, a pastor? Was he a Bible teacher? What, what, he was a server minister. And let me tell you, he did everything. He was a driver. He was a, he was a, a porter. He, he lugged luggage. He, uh, he served as an interpreter, he translated, he, he interfaced with things. If, if there was a dispute with a, with a bill, he went and he hashed it out with, uh, with uh, the, the person the dispute was with. And just everything. He was a, a right-hand man for, uh, for Ralph LaRosa like, like I've never seen before. I thought, wow. This, and he just, like, a, like an aide-de-camp, like a, like a uh, you know, a, a, a whatever a military officer would be there for that. And uh, yeah, aide de camp is the word I'm thinking about. And or chief of staff, right? Like a White House chief of staff. Somebody that was just there and he's just putting out fires and he's handling uh, all the distractions and he's, he's making sure that the principal person that he was serving, that all of his distractions were out of the, off the table and out of the way and that, uh, that Ralph could preach and teach and evangelize and be a missionary and do all those other things. Because Jeff, Jeff was the guy. Okay? Like I say, hauling luggage and driving and uh, all the all the administrative details that that had to happen. Anyway, uh, Jim Myers has a fellow like that in Ukraine, and again, 
it's, it's, a, it's a marvelous ministry. And is it, uh, is it uh, insulting? Is it degrading? Not at all. Somebody might claim it. Somebody might accuse it or say, you know, how could you do that or, or whatever. You know, but I think it's, 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 first of all, if you're not humble, you'll never survive a ministry like that. But if you are humble, not only could you survive a ministry like that, you would be thoroughly thrilled and blessed and honored and, and just think, what a privilege. Here I get to serve. You know, think of what Katie Tapping did for decades with Colonel Theme. You know, examples like that and other, other illustrations. And you just think, wow, I, I, I was honored to, uh, I was honored to be my first sergeant's driver through Desert Storm. Uh, just honored, you know, to, to drive and set up the tent and lay out, the, do the laundry and, and all the other stuff. Anyway, that's kind of the, the aspect here. And so Epaphroditus was the minister to Paul's need. He gets to town and Paul's in jail. And, uh, and who's going who's gonna to bring him food? Who's going to, uh, who's going to tend to Paul's needs? Believe it or not, Roman jails were not the, the cushy things that, uh, they didn't have the ACLU guaranteeing, uh, nutrition and, and, uh, food requirements and dietary th- provisions and, and, uh, they didn't have dimensions of the cells that were the minimum dimensions as provided for by the, by the, uh, uh the, the, the groups that we have today that, that do those kind of things. I'm not saying it's a total cakewalk if you go to jail in this day and age, but compared to the first century in the Roman world, let me tell you, wouldn't trade it for anything, all right? And even to this day in Turkey, if you're in a Turkish prison today, they don't feed you. They don't feed you at all. You have family or friends that, that, that bring you your food, or not, okay? Because the, the, the Turks, they're not feeding their prisoners. All right. And so to become a server minister, to, to arrive in town. And if, in fact, there's persecution going on, and you realize when it says you showed sympathy to the prisoners, that means you put your life at risk. That means now the, uh, the authorities know who you are. Oh, are you with him? Oh, you must be a Galilean. You must be with, you know, and Peter, he was denying the Lord, right? And so think about it. Epaphroditus risked his life because he was serving Paul's needs. Identifying with the body of Christ. All right. Epaphroditus' longing and distress became the circumstance for Paul's mandatory action. Grammatically, when you look at verse 26, because he was longing for you all and was distressed. There were two actions uh, verbs that Epaphroditus is the subject of these verbs, longing and distressed. And because Epaphroditus was longing and because of Epaphroditus's distress, those actions are said to be caused, causative, for the necessity that we talked about in verse 25. I thought it was necessary. I concluded it was necessary. Because... He was longing for you all and was distressed. So it was Epaphroditus longing and distressed. Those became the circumstances for Paul's mandatory action. For Paul's mandatory action. Wouldn't have been mandatory otherwise. Or Paul would not have considered it mandatory otherwise. But because he was longing, because he was distressed. In other words, Paul had a sensitivity to his servants. 
He had a sensitivity to those under his ministry and what their needs were, what their weaknesses were, what their distress is. And he was mindful of it. Didn't ignore it. Didn't blow it off. Didn't say, you know, suck it up, Epaphroditus. Deal with it. Get some doctrine and grow up. You're here to serve me, remember? And what was he distressed about? Well, he had heard, no, that that he had heard, that they had heard, that he was sick. The worst part about being sick was he didn't want them to know he was sick. (laughs) Okay? He was sick to the point of death, but when they found out about it, that caused him distress. Because he didn't want them to be troubled by his infirmities. And so he had heard that they had heard that he was sick. And that distressed him. So because he was longing for them. Longing for you all. And uh, he wanted to go back. Well, Paul said, all right. Carry this book with you when you go. (laughs) Here's a book of the Bible. You can go back now. And they're going to be comforted when they say you. You're going to be comforted when you see them. The distress is going to go away. And, uh, and that will be a good thing. Now, whether it was absolutely necessary or not, Paul considered that it was. Okay? And I think we can relate to this as well. There are have-tos and then there are have-tos. And sometimes we don't like the have-tos. And sometimes the have-tos aren't really have-tos, but we think they are. Okay? Uh, the language is, is clear. It is, a, it is an obligation. It is a duty. And even God himself has have-tos, which some people don't like. But Jesus had to go to the cross. There was no other way to redeem humanity. Uh, that uh, obeying, Jesus had to obey the Father because disobeying the Father was not under consideration for, for the God the Son. God has to tell the truth. God cannot lie. God has to be true to himself. And God has many have-tos. If we deny him, he cannot deny himself. He has an obligation there. So uh, of all the things that are, that are true obligations on God's behalf, things that are true absolute obligations on our behalf, we have absolute necessities ourselves. But then we have other necessities that may not ter- technically, in the strictest, strictest sense, may not be uh, necessary, but they are once we consider that they are. And we have a verb of consideration here, a verb of thinking, a considered, thoughtful conclusion. This is not just, well, it seems like it, or well, I suppose, right? Different ways that the New Testament describes how we think. And to me, I want, I want to be clear on these, I want all of us to be clear on these, because they get abused. Our enemies will accuse us of just wishful thinking. They'll accuse faith of being just, well, I want it to be so. They accuse faith of being, well, you don't know, so you just, you just pretend. And, and they, they, they criticize us, with, they attack us with this, and there's answers for all of it. We better be equipped to give those answers. To just throw it right back at them and say, you are sadly misinformed on faith. You are sadly misinformed on thinking. Because the Bible is a thinking book, and Philippians is a thinking book within the canon of Scripture. And so there are verbs that, well, it seems or it supposes. That's dokeo, and we don't have that here. It's not just, well, it seemed like, not here. Well, I suppose, not here. He thoughtfully considered. And that's what hegeomai is. It was a considered, thoughtful conclusion. 
a considered, thoughtful conclusion. And the verb hegeamai, H-E-G-E-O-M-A-I, hegeamai, number 2233, this takes time. I don't know that this one could ever be an instantaneous thing. This, this is a thought process. This is a lengthy consideration whereby over whatever length of time, I'm not saying it has to be months and years, but at least for a, an actual time period of whatever length that search, uh, scriptures were searched, prayer was given, consideration was given, all of the, the pros and cons and ups and downs, all of the alternatives were, were thought about. It is a thoughtful conclusion. And by the way, if you want to do that word study on Hegat and my number 2233, you're going you're to encounter something pretty interesting is that this, this term is used in really two widely separate ways. But it's the same verb and it's the same Strong's number where sometimes it's used in a thinking context and sometimes it's a noun because the participle from this verb is used as, as a term of leadership. When it says obey your leaders, for example, other terms in the New Testament for leaders, this is a leadership term. And that right there is kind of exciting. (laughs) Makes you think that, you know, your leaders are the ones that you expect to think. (laughs) Right? Don't don't you want a boss that thinks? You know, or a military commander that thinks, or a supervisor that thinks, or a pastor that thinks, or any, you know, a husband that thinks. If there's a leader in a leadership function, it's, it's a good thing that they put some thought into what they're doing. That's expected. Right? And, and even, uh, even to the point where if you're really new, if you're a low rank, if you're a private, uh, for example, oftentimes your sergeant will say, uh, you don't get paid to think. Ever heard that? <laughs> All right. You know, because you were told to do something and then you thought, well, no, what were you thinking? You, you don't get paid to think. I get paid to think. And uh, anyway, different, different illustrations there. But the whole principle is, is curious to me in, uh, in the, the, this particular word. Well, these, uh, <clears throat> these expressions that we have here, I'm going to walk us through these verses and you'll see, you'll see the thoughtful consideration in all of it. Um, but whether it was absolutely necessary or not, Paul considered that it was. And a very similar episode happened uh, a couple years prior to this uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. So I'll show you really it's a parallel to this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And... Um, with respect to Thessalonica and Timothy. Where am I? There we go. And these are the kind of things you deal with when you're in ministry and things happen and things you don't expect and then you end up, um, you know, staying flexible and obeying God and doing what you do in the will of God. And so at the point in that second missionary journey when they all got scattered, Paul was not able to go back to Thessalonica himself. He says, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And so Paul and Silvanus, they, they're trying to decide what to do. Remember, uh, it was Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy that were traveling on that second missionary journey. 
Paul and Silvanus being the older men and Timothy being just the kid, 10, 12 years old. All right. And uh, what do we do? We can't go back to Thessalonica. Paul and Silvanus definitely can't. And if they do, then Jason's in trouble. We put the money up guaranteeing he wasn't coming back. And uh, we thought it best to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. It doesn't say we sent Timothy, the 10-year-old little kid, although he probably was. Our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. And that's kind of a fun thing too. Our brother, but God's fellow worker. Okay? And so, thankfully, the Thessalonians were not like the uh, Corinthians. They didn't despise Timothy's youth. They weren't insulted at having Timothy sent to them. They were happy to have Timothy sent to them. And um, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. You say, well, how can this little kid strengthen my faith? Is that even possible? You bet it's possible. Absolutely it's possible. If, uh, you know, uh, maybe I'm an adult man and we've got a whole church full of adults and whatever, but we just got saved two weeks ago. How much doctrine do we have? (laughs) How stable are we in the things of the Lord? And then, so here comes a 10-year-old or 12-year-old. I'm just guessing on his age. Um, But I know that 12 years after this event, Paul says, let no one despise thy youth. See, so I don't think he's in his 20s now. Because if he's in his 30s, why would they despise him for his youth in his 30s? See, anyway. So we're just guessing on his age. But think about it. Even if he is 10 or 12 years old, he's been saved since he was just a little kid. He's been under teaching. He's learned from his mother. He's learned from his grandmother. He's got more Bible verses memorized. He knows Greek and Hebrew. Okay? Kind of had a head start, I think, with his mom and his dad. But his father was a Greek. His mother was a Jew. And what do you know? Makes seminary easy, doesn't it? But do you think if, when he comes in and has stuff to talk about that they're going to listen to him? Especially since he's not preaching his own sermons. He's reminding them of the things that Paul had taught. And so uh, we thought it best. We thought it best. So you go through the considerations and what are the alternatives and this is the best and you pray over it. The Holy Spirit uh, blesses it and off you go. To strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. He told him while he was there that there were some tough times ahead. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. And Timothy was right there when he was preaching that. Timothy was in Philippi when Paul and Silvanus were thrown in jail. What did Timothy do after that? Okay? All right. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, when I could endure it no longer, that's the second time he said that, verse 1 he said, when we could endure it no longer. In verse 5 he says, when I could endure it no longer. And maybe, I don't know why he dropped from the weed of the eye there, but maybe Sylvanus gave up first and then Paul gave up last. I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So Timothy has to go and check out their faith. Similar to what he's going to do in Philippi, right? He's going to go and do an investigation over Philippi. 
And so, uh, when you come to the end, when you consider, I can't do any more, and you just ask yourself, Father, can I do any more? <laughs> okay, can I endure no more? And the Father knows. I think we quit before we're supposed to, but He knows. And then He just, he just takes us where we need to be. All right. Now this hey, get my verb, I enjoy. We've had it before. We've had it in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Remind ourselves on some of these. Show you the thought process that goes into it. It's not just, uh, I suppose so. I suppose so. No. Considered, thoughtful conclusion. Uh, <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 9, we've got verses 1 through 4 that leads up to verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. You look at all the thought that went into that, all the considerations, who and what they are, who and what the the Philippians were, who and what uh, these servants were what the attitude might be, the problems they've had in the past, the uh, issues they have here with grace, as he says, real quickly, verses 1 through 4, it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that as I was saying, you may be prepared. So he's got some thought that went into this. That's why he's sending them ahead of time. He says, I'm bragging about you, but just in case. (laughs) All right. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, uh uh-oh, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. Okay? Okay. So you've made a commitment. You might struggle with it. Let's, uh, let's take care of things ahead of time. Let's make sure that it's grace. Let's make sure it's not affected by covetousness. So you see all the thought process. So I thought it necessary. And it includes the heget in my thinking and it includes the ananko, uh, ananko um, necessity. The same necessity that we're looking at in, in Philippians here this morning. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 6. I'm going to run out of time. Uh, Philippians 2, verses 3 and 6. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another. That's our term for thinking. Active thinking, consideration, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's an active work of thinking. Verse 6. Who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That regarding. It's active thought. It is a considered, thoughtful conclusion. And of course, this morning we're in Philippians 3.8. 1 Timothy 1.12, He considered me faithful, putting me into service. That's a thoughtful, considered regard. He regarded the Apostle Paul as faithful, even though he was formerly a, a blasphemer and violent aggressor. James 1.2, Consider it all joy, my brethren when you encounter various trials. That's a thoughtful, considered conclusion. Wow, this is joy. This test I'm going through, this is joy. And then Hebrews 11, 11 and 26, in the Hall of Fame of Faith, considered, 
when it comes to sacrificing Isaac, when it comes to the reproach of Egypt. Hebrews 11.11 By faith even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. That's a thoughtful, considered conclusion. The one who promised that I'm going to have a baby, the one who promised that is the eternally faithful God. I'm going to have a baby. I don't know how. (laughs) I don't know how. I mean, I'm 90 years old. I've been postmenopausal now for decades, but, you know, when your last monthly thing was so long ago, you can't even remember it. And wow, and I'm going to have a baby? How's that going to happen? Well, God is faithful. He is the faithful one. And since she considers him faithful, she receives the capacity to conceive. Verse 26. Uh, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Thoughtful, considered conclusion. Choosing to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And he puts the thought into it as far as why. Why he's going to have that attitude. So, we do the same thing. Paul did the same thing. He considered that it was necessary. The thoughtful considerations for the Philippians' sake, thoughtful considerations for Epaphroditus' sake, thoughtful considerations for his own sake, putting their needs ahead of his own. He's voluntarily surrendering his own server minister so that he can, Epaphroditus can carry the scroll back to the Philippians. And, uh, and there it is. All right. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this truth. I pray that we would be thoughtful in what we consider, that we would come to thoughtful, considered conclusions and not just... Uh, make assumptions or suppose something or fly off the handle and decide something based on an emotion. Father, I pray that we would make thoughtful, considered conclusions grounded upon your will above all else, revealed in your word, prayed over, considered, and uh, proceeded forth on the basis of faith. So I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.